Each new disruptor mandates, if only as a side effect, the death of one incarnation of the company and the birth of a new one. For innovators operating under conditions of big bang disruption, surviving success is nearly as hard as surviving failure. They're the words from our guest and this stellar series that we're conducting with the author of Big Bang Disruption, Paul Nunes. Welcome back. Thanks, Aiden. Great to be back. We have Paul straight back from his holidays as well, straight into the hot seat here as well. So he's nice and fresh. And I thought, Paul, we'd describe some of the laws that you introduced in the book. So Some people know these. We've talked about Moore's Law before, but I thought it was also important to introduce the other law, which is Moore's Law back, which was Eroom's Law because this is important when it comes to some of the later rules. Today, we're going to talk about the four phases of the redistributed landscape of Everett Rogers' old bell curve to Paul's new curve, the shark fin. And then we're going to talk about the 12 rules that fall under those. A lot to get through. But Paul, let's start with Eroom's Law. Yeah, well, Eroom's Law is an interesting thing that we found. And I'm not sure a lot of people actually use the term outside of... Um, well, pharmaceuticals, where it was first really understood, um, which is this idea that while Moore's Law is reducing the cost, increasing the power of everything, it turns out that in pharmaceutical, the success of new drugs, the creation and the amount spent has actually been the reverse of Moore's Law. And we've actually seen logarithmically, which means, you know, in a 10x kind of change, the number of drugs discovered and the number of billions of dollars spent to discover them has actually been declining dramatically. So whereas a billion dollars might have gotten you, you know, a hundred new drugs 20, 30 years ago, today, you know, you spend $20 billion to get maybe one new drug. And so this reverse and everything, it's better to understand, you know, we always talk about how to understand trends and the importance of these mega trends that underlie things. Um, that's been an enormous law in pharmaceuticals and one that's really scared people because it said, well, you know, do you have to be a huge company with billions of dollars to invest to actually make something happen? And, you know, this idea of the blockbuster drug, you know, it's an enormous risk to put out five, ten billion dollars in a in drug development with only a few likely winners. So, Paul, one of the reasons I mentioned that was it's important for those legacy or incumbent industries rather than than companies. Those companies like, say, for example, in the banking that are heavily, heavily regulated, because there's a quote there that I wanted to pull. And this talks later on. So we might talk about USPS, the United States Postal Service later on and their tragic demise, if we want to call it that. Because you wrote, executives who rely on regulatory costs as barriers to more efficient forms of research and development are lulling themselves into a dangerous slumber. In healthcare, like you just mentioned, finance, energy, and other heavily regula regulated industries, consumer pressure for big bang disruption is building to dangerous levels. I thought about that image of the Dutch boy with the dam, with his finger in the dam. Exactly. Many industries are relying on regulation, and we see it particularly with banking. You see it in banking, but you see it in pharmaceuticals as well. I think what's interesting, you know, pulling from recent experience is vaccines for COVID and such, and, and other vaccines, and that 
the amount of testing and government regulation and the amount of proof. Now, all of that's very well and good. You want to have safe drugs in that, unless you're in a big hurry because you've got a, a pandemic, a, you know, a global pandemic. There's an interesting sort of trade-off between the ability to be creative and innovative quickly and the need for that, and then also the need and the maturing of industries, and like you say, banking, where we also want to have regulation safety. I mean, you look at cryptocurrency is <clears throat> another you know, is an example of well, this is what happens when we don't have the kind of regulation and oversight that we traditionally have. But we'll talk about it a little more as we go through uh, some of the details of the the shark fin. But you know, whether it be Airbnb or Uber. Um, and, and those are just examples of those kinds of businesses, you know, online, uh, home rental, P2P, peer-to-peer home rental, or, you know, essentially Lyft services, um, car services like Lyft and Uber, you know, pressing at the very edge of what's legal. And like you say, sort of the, the Dutch boy with a finger in the dam, it's like, well, once the technology and the possibilities become so much greater than the reality, that's where you get a big bang. Um, and for incumbents, it's really important to figure out, well, to what extent am I going to hold the try and hold the dam back, you know, keep the dam there, hold the water back? And at what point am I going to release it? And we've got a great example coming up um, I'll talk about in terms of Phillips and incandescent lighting. Um, but this idea of, you know, do you hold the, try and hold the water back? And, and I think it's interesting because I think we saw even in writing the book that the more water you hold back and the longer you do it, the more pressure builds and the more catastrophic the rush is when, when the dam fails. And it's like you're and you're the source of this, by the way, I have to say this, the quote that we hear a lot in innovation, Ernest Hemingway, the sun always rises. I'll let you quote it coming from the source himself, because you're a highly eclectic reader. So you read widely, you read from many, many different areas. And this is so common in innovation, where we see the gradual and then the sudden demise yeah well it's really almost just a throwaway even in the book he's having drinks in spain the protagonist and with another sort of you know uh lost generation person you know a rich or formerly rich person that lost it in the depression so they're all in europe and so he's just talking about a time he's having a conversation the protagonist having a conversation in a cafe and he asks this rich guy, you know, how his family business went bankrupt. So, you know, how did, and he says, well, gradually at first, then suddenly. <laughs> um, and uh, it, it kind of uh, really summarized a lot of, for us, you know, uh, big bang disruption uh, victims. And it's like, well, you know, whether it's Blockbuster as the classic example or Nokia or other ones, right? But it always seems like, they're always, and it's important to think about. They're always kind of going bankrupt gradually, before suddenly. And, and one of the things that, uh, yeah, I'll just throw in that Kodak. It was interesting. We just, I was just looking at some of the old pictures of Kodak that are in the book, and you see that the employees, the number of employees, had dropped off pretty enormously, pretty catastrophically, well before the business performance dropped off. And so, for anybody who was looking at, you say, well, all right, the stock price is kind of doing 
fine. Uh, but what's happening with you know half of the employee population? And, and it's true that as you identify as well, it's usually the good ones who leave first because they're the ones who are like you recognize in your first book, jump in the S curve, or your first in the series, is that they're the ones who are highly talented and will look for growth elsewhere. It's interesting. That's both true of talent. So you want to watch where your talent is going. So even in pinball, it was really interesting. Most of the uh, home electronics games were designed by pinball designers because really there wasn't a, a, a huge industry of entertainment and electronic entertainment designers. Where were you going to find those people? Well, those people were, and we did all the research, and those people existed and were poached from the pinball industry. Um, and so, you know, when you start to see some of your employees packing up and moving on, it's like, well, you know, everybody's got different life things. But when you start to see them moving like at, you know, Fairchild Semiconductor, <laughs> just, you see them moving over and, and, and en masse to something new and different, you might want to pay attention. That's a good time to move your investment as well into an early pre-IPO, perhaps, investment as well. It's, it's an interesting way to track the talent rather than the stock price. It's a good way to think about this. Yeah, it all comes together because what's really interesting, we found the two things. Like I said, one is it's often the same people um, that build an industry, not just a company. So, you know, Gordon Moore worked with all the folks at uh, Intel and, and such all worked in uh, Fairchild Semiconductor and stuff at first early on and, and kind of cut their teeth there and moved on. The second thing we found in the first book in Jumping the S-Curve that's important is this idea of being a, a hothouse of talent and growing and throwing off talent into the industry. Um, and so when you see and follow where those people are going, you start to see where industry trends are. And I'll just throw in one more thing because I think it's an important idea that I'm not sure has come out. I know I mentioned it earlier, but I think it's really important is that, you know, a person's job or employment is one of the most important critical decisions and investments they make in your, in your whole life. And so the value and the promise that's inherent in that, right? So looking for good talent and, and smart people and seeing where are smart people placing their bets? Because it's one thing for people to place money, but when you place your time, your life, when you're betting your life on something, you're pretty convinced. And, and when you start to see talent flowing out in the same way, when, when good talent loses confidence, that's time to pay attention. Great call out, man. Great call out. I love that. And you've teed us up beautifully for a case study I've never heard. And I have to say, I've read some of these case studies. And I've, I've said to Paul, I've written about them in my own book. And Paul was the source of those. So Paul was the original person to write about Fujifilm, for example, well ahead of many other people in the industry as well. But one of the great, great case studies you cover is, like you said, the pinball industry, because it was an industry, it was huge for a very very long time and it also is a lovely way to tee us up for the shark fin yeah so let's talk about um the shark fin and its phases but uh you know if you talk about pinball what is really emblematic in it is how innovation was seen and underrated innovation relied on 
as it always kind of does on the existing industry to for a time. And then it moves off. And then yeah, I think one of the really interesting things is the commitment of the industry and even in pinball, which was billions of dollars. Pinball was once um, almost the equal of movie theater revenues. It's crazy to think about. That's how big, in the U.S. at least, pinball as an industry became. And so it's hard for those folks to sort of see the need to move to the next industry, particularly when the next industry is going to be 10x or 100x larger than what they have. And even at the very end, many of the founders and successful folks in pinball stuck with it. And one of the things I was just, you know, renewing my awareness of was just how dedicated those who were committed to the industry, they, you know, they started making pinball software for these machines because darn it, they weren't going to give up on pinball. (laughs) <laughs> and so, you know, one of the big uh, leaders of pinball and, uh, you know, Bally and whatever, but one of the big, you know, founders of it, you know, went all the way through with it to, you know, video. And some of us are old enough to remember, you know, pinball on video machines, but it was like, you know, but I just can't let it go. So I think that's really interesting. I think what's interesting is how different the cycle, the life cycle, it kind of highlights the the change and the shift in the life cycle of a product that occurs on a shark fin instead of a bell curve. So we talked about Everett Rogers' bell curve and the different segments of of customers, Um, but it's very different when you have this shark fin shape. And so what we recognize, there were really four areas of business activity, we call it sort of four stages in the new life cycle that companies really have to think about and reinvent for and, and, and get their arms around. And so there's what we call the singularity, but it's this coming together, like you know, when the bang happens, so sort of borrowing from the idea of a big bang, you know, the event, which is really the innovation phase. Then there's the second phase, which is the, um, the rapid scaling or, um, in uh, what we called catastrophic success, which is this this idea of all of the the demand comes immediately. Then there's the the post saturation downturn, um, which is also much faster than the traditional bell curve. And then there's this flat sort of entropy stage, which is what do we do now? Uh, <laughs> and I think the thing to do is probably you know look at each of those stages in itself and see how business strategy has to change. Before we go through today's session, so what we'll do today is go through each of those four phases, but also then there's three rules that fall out of each of those phases. So you can be leading the industry and avoid this big bang disruption yourself. But a great case study, again, that that I think you so clearly wrote about with Larry in this book is Nintendo. and the fact that the disruption cycles are coming so quickly that you almost as soon as you develop a product, you're moved on to the next one, or else you've actually planned out a sequence of products because, as you say in the book, because of near-perfect market information, your customers are going to be the ones pushing those innovations upon you. So you don't have time to dwell and enjoy your success. Simply no time anymore. And then at the same time, as you say, you have to prepare for what happens if immediate success comes 
And the Nintendo story tells a lot about this. Yeah, and the Nintendo story is really best summarized in the chart that I hope and think we can probably project for for viewers. Yeah, because uh, and listeners, but for listeners, it's really it, you just imagine this bell curve shape, and over time with different product introductions, the shape of the distribution of the sales of that starts to change from a bell curve. So it happened gradually in many ways for Nintendo. Nintendo's first products, actually, the sales of them follow a bell curve. But gradually it starts to shift, and you see towards the very end, the newest products are very much a shark fin curve of adoption. Um, all the way up into the Wii systems, um, and then you also see like we you, um, which didn't do very well. So you kind of see exactly the bump we talk about in the innovation cycle, which is where if it's not going to sell, if it's not to the customer's satisfaction, it's not going to take off. It's not going to have even a bell curve rise. It's going to go up pretty quickly like we did and, and drop uh, fairly quickly as well. So we really see in this one company that's been selling you know, excellent and successful product, an excellent and successful product over time, exactly how the shape of sales changes, including this little dip that we call the saddle, um, which is interesting because the bell curve is never entirely a bell curve. What happens at the top of a bell curve is competitors come in and prices start to reduce. So what happens is you then lower your prices to compete. Sales comes back you get a second bump and it's sort of what they call in, in finance, you know, dead cat bounce. Um, and it's really important for those who kind of study these curves to recognize that it's like, no, when you get that second sales lift at the end of the bell curve, because you've cut prices and people would rather have your brand than the competing brand, but you're losing revenue. That sales is, that's kind of the sign that, okay, that's the dead cat bounce. This means <laughs> that sales lift means, yeah, it's the, the, the end is coming. And so Nintendo is a fantastic example on uh, a ton of levels because it really highlights, you know, the all the parts of the shark fin, which is the amount of technology insight you have to bring and timing, just like we talked about in the Kindle of that, in terms of the innovation cycle. And particularly in a business as you see this happening, so what happens is in the shark fin is, Many times you're out of the market longer than you're in the market. And I, I like that expression, so I'll say it again. Out of the market longer than you're in the market. Because the time it takes you to develop the product and, and the winning formula might be years or decades. Um, you know, a decade, literally. Um, Amazon, actually, Bezos pointed out that he was seven years before the Kindle was introduced. And remember, they never introduced test product. But he had started thinking about and doing real research and acting on it seven years before the Kindle was introduced. That's a long time to be out of the market before you're in the market. And then once it started selling, by the time the next version, and this gets to the, the question of versioning, the importance of, you know, once you have this, you're going to have this rapid adoption that we talked about because people want the best. And when you're the best on every strategic dimension, you're the it product. But then what happens is you saturate the market very quickly. 
And so, you know, if I have 300 million people just to say in the United States, you know, selling more than 300 million Nintendos is going to be a trick because, you know, I, I, even if everybody bought one, you know, everybody has a need for one, but very few people have a need for two, right? Maybe at the guest house or, you know, whatever. But you can see there are physical limits to saturation. And so what we found that was really interesting is where so often in the past, most companies don't plan for saturation, really. Um, I kind of mentioned it in a previous call a little bit about cruise ships and that, you know, how many cruise, how many rooms do you need in cruise ships? How many available across all providers for, you know, people? It's like, well, for a population, it's like, well, I don't know, but I know it's a lot fewer than we have right now. So I'm not going to worry about it. But that's very different than, say, phones or iPods or um, lots of these other products, you know, where we actually can talk about saturation pretty darn quickly. And one of the examples you give later on in the book to tie it to the Kindle is the Barnes and Noble Nuke and how they over they had overplanned because they had had early success and then they lost billions because they had overinvested. Yeah, I'm glad you bring that up, Aiden, because one of the other things I like to say, I don't think I ever said it specifically in the book or we ever said it specifically in the book, but I love using it in um, talks where I present on this, is there's no business so good that it can't be destroyed by messing up inventory. And all the supply chain folks that I presented to, they just love it. They kind of, <laughs> yeah, it's great. but it's so true when you think about it. And, and this is what Big Bang Disruption brings to this is that you don't know how many of something you're going to have to make to optimize sales, right? You know, the right, the right amount, they always kind of joke and say, you know, the right amount of anything to make that you're selling is market demand minus one. When you're going to see, even if you know ahead of time, there's going to be saturation and there's going to be what we term, you know, this catastrophic, potentially catastrophic success. You can't use the old rules of how to guess how many you're going to need. And it really, in some ways, becomes a guess. And it becomes a function of, you know, how much stomach you have for the risk. And so we're jumping ahead a little bit to this phase of catastrophic success but let's stay on that uh, you know for another moment because there's really interesting things there with this like how do you bet on this and you know one of the things that was really interesting that we saw was even a company like microsoft microsoft had to you know add to its books a, a minus a billion dollars i was asked people and you know close to time, well, what, what was that how did microsoft lose a billion dollars one quarter and the answer was a little thing called the Surface tablet. And if you remember back, you know, a while back, and some may or may not remember, but after, the, you know, the iPad was sort of introduced in that and the whole tablet thing became important, Microsoft entered the tablet market with the Surface tablet. Well, it turned out that it had a lot of these, and a lot of these were in inventory. And it turns out that finally the accountants caught up with them and said, you know, you got these marked, you know, you got these booked at a thousand dollars a piece, but I don't think you're going to get a thousand dollars. You might not even get five hundred. I think you got to make an adjustment here. And Microsoft, to his credit, said, you know, you're probably right. 
So boom, they wrote down a billion dollars in inventory value on, on existing surface tablets that they knew they weren't going to be able to sell. Now, at the time, of course, it was critically important, as it always is, to keep inventory on the shelf. The last thing you want is stockouts, right? Stockouts um, can be an okay thing for a very short period of time if it makes people feel like, you know, demand is high and, you know, there's, there can be strategic shortages but if you're really going to optimize the value that strategic shortage can't last very long um, so you know you underproduce and you lose the opportunity you overproduce and you lose um, this you overproduce and you wind up eating all your profits off of the fact that you've got all this other inventory that's got to be sold nothing now, I'll give you another good example that's really interesting because the other problem can be that the competitor, when you've made a choice of what to build, can actually come from another direction. This is where the iPod, the iPad comes in again. You know, the iPad, there was a, a, a drawing company that was built to, to work off of the Wii, and it was a standalone pad so that you could use Wii to, to draw stuff. Well, it turned out that they built the whole product. And they built millions of units for sale right at the time the iPad was becoming really popular. <clears throat> and it turned out that nobody really wanted to buy both an iPad and a U-Draw. Um, and so, you know, the, the guys are like, you know, we did everything right. And we had this great product that was going to, you know, again, be a multi-million seller on the back of... Um, you know, the hugely successful Nintendo product and all the market research is everything fine. But again, going to what happens when you have a powerful platform in the marketplace, uh, you know, the speed at which a competitor can come in and, and uh, override your product is, is mind blowing. This point of supply chain, I know you said it and all the supply chain guys love you. It's so, so important. And supply chain to me was something so, so boring before I delved deeply into innovation. And before I read the book, The Magic Conveyor Belt by Dr. Professor Yossi Sheffi, who's a future guest. He's our next series, by the way, on the Innovation Show. But also Yossi and Paul are going to come together and do an intersections show where we both talk about supply chain from an innovation perspective. Because there's so much in this, and I just it got my mind shooting in so many directions just to bring it to life for some of our audience who maybe work in marketing. I worked as head of digital for a media company, Paul, and where I first experienced this idea of devastating success was we we were first to do a few innovations, like for example, we live streamed the budget, the Irish budget on on our homepage, and we had like a Twitter. Uh, poll and places you could ask questions all this kind of stuff but we weren't prepared for the amount of traffic that we got <laughs> and the website goes down right so and and luckily we had amazon web service so we were able to and in its early days we were able to scale to actually evolve to the size of the audience but we missed so much of our audience so we learned quickly but that was where i discovered this but one of the examples you give from the book that people might not know of because they know of the success story is Dollar Shave Club. Yeah, Dollar Shave Club is another great one that builds off of uh, the potential of uh, 
recombinant innovation where we you know we have all these different availabilities of the parts that we talked about and where so long as you've got some of this you know uh internet connectivity you can bring together um marketing and outsourced product development and creation and production and you know you can basically outsource every piece of the puzzle um and try and manage this demand. The, the, the key is the risk uh, in terms of having available product. And see, in the old days, which is important for those who, who maybe you know, haven't even seen it um, from their own professional careers, but in the old days when you had a bell curve, you could actually, you know, the way that you tested things, you would market test, you'd put it out there, you'd see how fast it was getting adopted. And then you would see, you would call that the beginning of an S curve, and then you would show the shape. It was called a Bass diffusion model, and then you'd have a pretty good sense of where it was going to end up based on how fast it was getting adopted early on. And then you could build more. And the idea was also that you know you you had months before that demand was going to show up, and you just had to make sure you had enough in the warehouse. And you tried to manage warehouse costs and, and this and that. But obviously, as the S curves got you know, shorter and more uh, vertically, you know, became more vertical, the time in warehouse to the time, you know, it, it, to market. So having to stockpile for initial demand so that you would have at least some product in the market uh, became much more critical. And so it became an enormous risk. And that's where you see that, you know, large incumbents have a much better ability to handle that risk. So when Microsoft lost a billion dollars, it didn't destroy the company. They just lost a billion dollars in inventory. Well, there's not a lot of companies <laughs> that can support a loss of a billion dollars in inventory just because they, you know, they didn't guess demand right. Um, so we see that you know, for smaller companies, there's, there's obviously much more of a, of a bias to under production versus overproduction. Um, but again, it can happen on both sides of the coin, as I pointed out, where something happens and you were sure that you had the sale, you were sure you were going to be the it product and the market moved on. There's before we move on to so we're, we're already starting into it here. And I, I'm jumping ahead, Paul, you're, you're kind of stimulating my nerve endings here all over the place, neurons going left, right and center. But there's a really powerful insight in nintendo succession of shark fins we showed that curve a second ago what you say here is notice that the apparent cannibalization of sales from one generation to the next does not actually begin when the replacement product is released that dramatic decline in sales for each product its big crunch begins a year or two before the next product was launched that's a really important point uh, or uh, <clears throat> yeah and the day, and oftentimes, in some ways, the day it's announced, or the day it's released. Because here's the thing that happens: is we've trained customers. Okay, and more, you know, customers have become aware, and we've actually trained them to expect versioning, because customers know about Moore's law. I mean, in the old days, it was just some geeks in the back, right, that kind of knew about Moore's law, and it was business people in those industries. Right? Today, you probably can't find a person on the, you know, 50% of the street. Yeah, people in all kinds of industries understand the concept of Moore's law. But more importantly, they understand the concept of deflation in technology products. They understand that the television that was $1,000 
last month or you know last year is five hundred dollars this year and now it may be it was a thousand dollars last month it's going to be you know eight hundred six hundred so the idea of the deflationary power of technology is understood by consumers and they also understand that you know in time they're catching on to this in time the next version is going to be better and cheaper kind of has to be because i know these companies are working hard to make the product better and i know that technology deflation is going to make it cheaper so you think of your iphone for example right and you say i can't you know i can't put the customer on hold make them wait a year for an iphone or for an ex you know if there aren't enough of them without having to either lower the price or up the value because customers expect that you know this cadence the cadence of technology improvement and you think about it in anything right even cars it's like well you know one of the things i was realizing is the only way to tell a 10 year old car from today's car one of the only ways to tell today's car is how big the screen is and <laughs> really in short right you can't see anything on the outside really. generally maybe the, the bit of the led headlights but the fastest way to tell how new a car is is how big the screen is on the dashboard <laughs> But customers come to expect that, and they realize, like, well, next year the dashboard might be twice as big, you know, the screen. So maybe I'll just wait for that. Um, and so you get into this this setup where you have to introduce a a set of value at a price point, and then with the expectation that, you know, 12 months later or 24 months later or whatever it is, you're going to come out with the next version is going to be better and cheaper. And that's why we version through iPhones. But that's where the real challenge in innovation can become is that not only do you have to win on the first product and the market saturation, but you've got to create enough innovation to overwhelm the lower cost, because otherwise you wind up in Clay Christensen's problem in the innovator's dilemma, because now what happens is I don't have enough innovation to keep people buying, you know, my thing or more or better. So yeah, now it is, now you are going to have a problem with the cheaper and um, not as good or, you know, cheaper and as good. Um, and, you know, if you think about all the different phone makers inside, there were a bunch of Chinese ones that we talked to and that um, great ones that use the power of, open sourcing, you know, across the internet to create and sell cell phones, some with nice wooden cases and all these sort of things. But, you know, this ability, like where the next round of innovation is going to come and, and how you're going to beat that versioning problem. Um, and it's especially true, and this is interesting, in expensive products, right? Because the point is, I don't really want to buy a three, you know, $1,000 computer every year or $1,000, $1,200 phone every year unless I have a lot of new value to show for it. Um, you know, one of the great ones we looked at was the medical equipment industry, because when you think of something like a CAT scan or an MRI machine, well, these are multi-million dollar investments. So I need to know, all right, this one's probably pretty good, and you're selling me this one, but given that I'm probably going to have to make this last for five years or, or more, whatever it is, before I can pay off the loan, how do I, you know, as I amortize, how do I know what the next version is going to be? And so you see all these new things that companies have to do is, I know I only have to sell you this product, 
I have to give you some insight of what the next versions are going to look like in certain industries, right? I really have to tell you this shark fin cycle for the next 10 years, which is really hard to do, but it's a really interesting phenomenon. And and I got to tell you, what am I going to do with, and we talked about this a little bit before, but what am I going to do with this MRI (laughs) machine? How am I going to get it out of the building, let alone where is it going to? Is it going to another country? Is it going to, you know, a smaller hospital in a more rural area? But, you know, these are all things that companies never really had to plan for. Historically, 20 years ago, companies never really had to plan for the end of life cycle in a couple of years versus, you know, 10, 20 years. And there's there's so much of that today. Like uh, you know, one of the one of the challenges for me, if you take an MRI machine, it it actually pushes the company to then rethink the business model that maybe leasing is a better model. Where, but then what do I do with the excess machine? And even on a personal level, like I don't mind updating technology, but what I do mind is having this graveyard of old, old like I'm pointing over there to the box that they're in old iPads, old Macs, old phones that just have no use anymore. And they're just sitting there. And, and also, it's very hard to recycle them. You know, you nobody wants them anymore because they're useless. Like I say this, my wife has one of those iRobots, Paul. She loves, loves the thing, loves it much more than me, runs the house. It, it's always cleaning, <laughs> right? And she, she wanted to get a new one recently. Um, no, she she didn't. She actually goes, uh, it's fine. And I'm going, get a new one. The new version is like four life cycles more improved. And and see, she doesn't understand Moore's law. And I was like, going, you, it will be vastly superior. Doublings every time on each new generation. It's worth the investment. Well, this is the challenge, right? Is how on earth does that? And I'm intrigued by your logic on this, Aiden. I have to admit, because... How does a, a room sweeper become four times better? <laughs> well, well, it's well. It's actually, what happens to the room better. sweeper? I mean, I understand the technology. Like, it gets the corners better with a better corner <laughs> sweeper. It gets but like four. I don't know how many crumbs you've got in your head. Well, take it. It'll actually discern what, what's trash, so it'll actually pick me out and Hoover yeah, me up. It'll and go around me exactly. Yeah. You program that. No, but that's the, the yeah, it's like it getting better and, and just, but that's the trade off that people make and everything from sensitivities about throwing stuff in landfill to where's the the back end of it, um, you know, uh, where's the resale value if there is any, and so that's actually something that I had mentioned it to you at one time that you know it was actually one of the first things that I had, I had studied and and recognized about innovation was this, the nature of resale markets. And how important they were going to become, and that's back 1990s, uh, in mid 1990s. We realized that you know we're really going to have a problem where if we have all this innovation, thanks to Moore's law and everything else, we're going to have an awful lot of stuff that we've sold into people's homes that they don't need, they don't obviously need better for, and aren't going to have anything way to handle or do with it and get rid of. Um, so this is a, a, a tremendous, uh, tremendously important part of the, the saturation problem, which is that the market, you may find the market is far more saturated than you think. And it, and it doesn't actually GoPro is a great example, I think of that, which is, you know, 
how good a new GoPro do you need? And then this question of, and the challenge of, you know, if your GoPro, uh, which are the cameras, you know, the uh, most people are familiar with it, but the thing is that, well, once I have one, and then once I go to one that's 1080, you know, instead of 720, you know, so the resolution gets better, you get a bunch of, you know, sort of obvious directions where the technology is going to get better. But at the end of the day, it's still kind of a, a camera you attach to yourself, <laughs> a small um and if I've got one and I've spent a few hundred bucks on it or more, uh, you know, am I gonna am I in for the next five hundred bucks because it's that much better? And I'll put the I'll let the other one sit around on the shelf, like you say. A recent example, I'm going to call them out. The company I don't know how you pronounce it, it's Miel or Mila, who create appliances like washing machines, right? So expensive, expensive, high end washing machines, like for doing your clothes. So we had one of these. We have two young kids, so we go through a lot of washing, right? And the machine breaks down after two years, right? And I'm like, why? This becomes a question then. Why invest like a a grand in the machine, uh, 1K, when I can actually buy a cheaper machine like a Hoover for 400 euro and actually replace it more often? And the dilemma doesn't become actually it's a newer machine and it will perhaps it has planned obsolescence. But actually, it's it's an environmental and a sustainability question because most of us, if we're very honest with ourselves, lean towards the toilet bowl problem, which is like, I'll flush it away and I don't see where it goes once I bring drop it to a landfill. But that is a problem. And that, that's that's my tug of war that happens inside me in those moments. And I think it goes all over the place. And I think one of the places you see it that I find somewhat amusing having studied the company for so long and seeing it as a pillar of success is Ikea, right? Think of how many years we lionized a company that created disposable furniture. You know, the stuff that you're supposed to throw out. Say, you know, and then all of a sudden sustainability hits and it's like, well, well, wait a minute. You know, maybe I should have grandma's sofa for 30 years because maybe it's not as good looking, but, you know, it's there, it's made, it's, it's green. So um, I think this is an enormous question and challenge that uh, companies have to face. And I think it, ha- it, it also has to do in their thinking and design of, you know, you get two challenges. One is the, the different paces of technology improvement. So the challenge you have with cars, and the same thing with, you know, some of these is that you're not able to switch out the components that are improving technologically at the same pace, uh, you know, at a much faster pace than the rest of the thing. So going back to the television, we talked about, you know, televisions used to be sold as furniture, you know, in wooden boxes that because you were going to keep that television, you know, the Zenith television had nice wooden cabinetry. Uh, it, you know, it was not the disposable thing that televisions are today. Um, but you see that in all kinds of things, like you say, in cars and even in, in high tech white goods where the electronics so why can't i swap out the electronics or swap or more importantly swap out the belts and the whatever so i think we're going to see an evolution um to that but it is um it is difficult not to want to embrace the planned obsolescence and to get people to just buy the new one okay paul and i are gonna we're gonna take a break in a moment and we're gonna come back with a new episode on the 12 rules because I don't want to overwhelm you. We've had a lot of information today. 
and we think it's the best course of action. But before we do the last part of today's show, I wanted to share a quote that I mentioned to Paul in a previous episode in the series on Paul Nunes. And it was about Steve Jobs and Steve Jobs saying that Apple recognized trends because Paul certainly recognizes trends. And it's one of the goals of his work is to help us understand laws like Moore's Law, Irum's Law, and a law we'll talk about later, a hike's law. We'll tell, tell you a little bit about that in the next episode. But get a load of this Steve Jobs excerpt from an interview that I found that I think is so, so important to understand. Apple is a company that has, doesn't have the most resources of everybody in the world. And um, the way we've succeeded is by choosing what horses to ride really carefully, technically. We try to look for these technical vectors that, that have a future and that are headed up. And, you know, technology, different pieces of technology kind of go in cycles. They have their, their springs and summers and autumns, and then they, you know, go to the graveyard of technology. And so we try to pick things that are in their springs. And if you choose wisely, you can save yourself an enormous amount of work versus trying to do everything. And you can really put energy into making those new emerging technologies uh, be great on your platform rather than just okay because you're spreading yourself too thin. I thought that quote in particular spoke volumes to your work. I'm actually pretty sure he read your book. <laughs> so he, he talks about getting on the crest of those waves, understanding them, but also then a very important thing that's beyond the scope of today's chat, but is also how Apple, to avoid that idea of obsolescence and customers moving on to the best new, next new thing, is locking them into the ecosystem or the family of Apple products and everybody, everything being interoperable. That's a really important aspect. But over to you for your, your comments on this, and then we'll wrap up today's episode. Yeah, well, you can hardly find somebody better than Steve Jobs to sort of teach you about success in uh, a technological world. And I think he says a couple of really interesting things. One is he mentions the platform, um, which was an, an important thing that for Apple over time um, that was really interesting. And then the fact that he talks about, you know, and I love the term vector because you're picking a vector and, and where you and where things are sort of going. And so you think of, you know, it was piece personal computing, but where did personal computing go? And one of the things that I think was really interesting is Apple's ability to move from, say, the iPod um, to the iPhone, recognizing that in iTunes and that, that you know, the iPhone was going to destroy the iPod business. Um, and, you know, so that idea of being in on the spring of things um, and, and technological capability. I think the other thing that Apple points out and that Steve Jobs points out is the, the idea of, you know, being at the new edge of capability, which really only goes to the, the nature of innovation, right? But it's like, you know, well, of course, you've got to be at the spring, because if you're not at the spring, <laughs> if you're in the winter, if you're in the summer or the fall of a technology, it's, it's not that innovative and not the place. So, but the thing of placing bets and not being everything to everybody, I think, is also really important. Apple's always sort of taken one category at a time and just knocked the heck out of it. And supported by a great supply chain for the supply chain nerds out there. <laughs> you guys do a great job. 
So, but you know what? I, I thought I'd play that as well because it teases up beautifully for the next episode because that idea of spring, summer, autumn, winter also maps beautifully to your four phases of the shark fin as well. So we'll come back to that. And Paul, it I have to say to our audience, you got to read Paul's series of books. They're so, so well written. They're so highly researched, so highly detailed with so many new case studies and case studies of success as well. We don't, it's easy to point to all the failures in innovation the whole time, but there's great success stories in Paul's book as well. There's a copy there behind me, Big Bang Disruption. Highly recommend it. Still available on in hard copy and on Kindle. And also behind me, don't forget, I have a copy of Jumping the S Curve. I got two copies and Paul kindly sent me a signed copy as well. So I'm going to give away my own copy to somebody out there as well. Just sign up to the Innovation Show Substack to be in with a chance to win that. It's always a huge pleasure. I learned so much from this man. Paul Nunes, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Aiden.